horrible period of the, of the tribulation. Talk about the remnant or those that came to Christ because of the remnant? Uh, be, 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 in verse 4, you mean? No, I mean, how are you using the word remnant? Because that can be used yeah. by different people. to 144,000. Okay, well, now they, I think they probably, we don't know that. Uh, whether they also then are killed at the end and are resurrected, I'm not sure. We know exactly what happens to them. It tells us in chapter 14 that they're standing on Mount Zion with Jesus, the Lamb. So uh, for now, let's just set them aside. But there's a third group, and it doesn't tell us here, but it does in Matthew chapter 25. So you turn back to Matthew 25 for just a minute. I hope I'm not confusing you, but I want I want to make sure that you, um, you're tracking with me on one thing. In Matthew chapter 25, now, just to refresh your memory, uh, I want to go to verse 31. Um, Matthew 24 and 25 is what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus teaching on the end time, and he's responding to questions that his disciples had asked him. We, we looked at that quite a few <clears throat> months ago. And so chapter 24, he answers the question about the sign of the end of the age, the sign of your coming. And chapter 25 is the application of this. Be faithful, be ready. And then verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will gather, be gathered before him. And he will separate them, one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, just stop there. We don't need to read the whole passage. All right, now, just you have to think about, and that's always sometimes hard when you jump into a passage like this, but you have to think about, okay, it tells us in verse 31 and 32 some very specific time markers. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with his angels, sits on his glorious throne, so that tells you two things. This is not the rapture. This is the second coming of Jesus. He comes to earth, and he sets up his kingdom. He sets up his He's sitting on his throne. So whom is he separating here? Those who are alive when he returns. Not the church which been raptured come back with him. Not the tribulation saints who had killed during the tribulation but those who are alive when he comes back. And, which would make reasonable sense, some of them will be believers, will have responded to the message, 144,000 of the two witnesses or whatever, and those who have not. So the Lord has to separate them. And he separates them. The sheep go on his right, and these are metaphors, sheep and goats. The sheep on his right, they enter the kingdom with him. He says in verse 34, Then the king will say, Come, you are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. Enter the kingdom. Where do the goats go? They go to hell. He, he says, um, um, uh, where is that? Verse 41, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which have been prepared for the devil and his angels. So they are sent to the lake of fire. So it's... I didn't put it up there. (laughs) And I I probably should. I was trying not to... I've already made a mess. But you would... That would... It would occur... uh, I'm assuming, Tom, um, the Matthew 25 passage 
verse 31 and following is occurring like right in here. It, you know, it's right in here at the very beginning. Again, I, I'm trying to make spaces just so I can write stuff. Often these are very tight together. So, but I think it would be very, very close that this, after the, the binding of Satan and so on, that's very close to being. Because this is talking in effect, <clears throat> this isn't talking in effect um, uh, uh, to answer the question, who, who populates the kingdom? Who populates the, the thousand-year reign? Well, it's the church that have been raptured, because they come back with Jesus. We already know that from chapter 19. It's the tribulation saints that we just read about in verse 4. And it's those who are alive when Christ returns. We just read about that in Matthew 24. So we have three groups of people. All right. The first group, the church, they have their resurrected, glorified bodies, right? The second group, the tribulation saints, they have their resurrected, glorified bodies. What about these people? They don't have their resurrected, glorified bodies. Because you see, one of the questions we have to be able to answer is, if Satan leads another brief rebellion... Who rebels with it? The church? No, they're in their resurrected bodies. It's impossible for them to sin. The saints? No. So who is it? It's the children of those who entered the kingdom alive. Because the inference is, and Isaiah talks a little bit about this in some of his material in the prophecies about the kingdom, that they will they they will enter the kingdom alive, they will have families and so on, and so it's the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, whatever, they will join in the rebellion. That final, very, very, very short rebellion. Now, that's an inference we're drawing from the text. But we know the three groups that enter. And only one group has the capacity to reproduce. Now, my, I probably lost some of you, didn't I? But it's, it's, it's important to keep what the Scriptures are saying about these three basic groups of people that enter, enter, the, uh, enter the kingdom. The so what two of those kingdom. groups are sealed? Mm-hmm. Eternally. That's right, because they have the resurrected, glorified bodies. And the third one, who has not had either one of those occur to them, lives in the flesh, and I think you said last time, the innateness of the flesh yeah. shows that the heart is evil. Yeah. And therefore capable of rebelling. Yeah. And that is exactly what happens. And that's the question we have to ask, why does God... Why does God permit that? Why does God permit a final rebellion? I mean, you, the world the world has enjoyed virtually a thousand years of peace with Messiah Jesus ruling and all of the wonderful descriptive descriptions in, in, again, especially the book of Isaiah. It's just, it's amazing. And yet, Satan's released and he doesn't give us a finite number, but a whole bunch of them join him in the rebellion. It's just, it's amazing. What does that show us? In a thousand years, there could be a lot of children. Yeah, I mean, there could. This could be significant. But it shows us again that the problem, God is going to show it one more time, the problem of the human race is a heart problem. And even after living with the Lord Jesus ruling and reigning in all of his perfection, because he never can do anything unjust, unrighteous, or anything, he's ruling as a perfect king, you still have people rebelling. So God has to change us. And he changes us through his resurrected, glorified body, through the glorified, resurrected body he gives us, which is the final stage of our redemption. Jim, one other question now. As a follow-up, some of those that are in the flesh could turn to him. 
Well, I, yes, I, I would assume, yes, and I would assume many, if not most, do, but some yeah. do not. Twelve one odds like the disciples? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. All right, now, yeah, Daryl. Yeah. In church age, we know that the Holy Spirit we have been blessed by that. But now in tribulation, I have a question about what what I've been taught before, but then also in the millennium, then, what would the role of the Holy Spirit be in those last two? That's a really good question. The with the, the, the tribulation period, I think that the scriptures are clear. The church is gone, and so that indwelling supernatural work of God's Spirit is not present. Uh, that's why the salt and light and all that is 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 gone. The then the, the thousand year reign of Christ. Um, let's think about that for just a minute. You have these two, what I assume to be pretty large group of people, the church. That's, and if you just take where we're at, that's about 2,000 years of people. <laughs> but the church, and then those from the tribulation period, uh, the tribulation saints, they already they have a glorified, resurrected body. So they, uh, I mean, if, does it sound right to say they don't need the Spirit? I mean, it's, it's just that the Spirit's not indwelling them in the same way he was during the church age. So it's like because he's God as the Son and the Father of God, I mean, he's there, he's imminent, he's everywhere present, but I don't think his indwelling ministry is there in the church or the resurrected saints from the tribulation period. But the scriptures are silent on those who enter, enter the, the, uh, the kingdom period alive. So I, I just I can't answer that with, with definitive uh, uh, dogmatic certainty. I, I just can't. Uh, it, but that the scriptures are silent about that specifically. I mean, they're just silent. Choose to be silent. And I think we should probably assume that indwelling work of the God's Spirit is is not a part of those who enter the tribulation a lot, uh, enter the kingdom, uh, millennial kingdom period alive. But I'm not positive on that. What it's if, just what if could it be more integrated instead of two parts like when you get your resurrected body you're more integrated with the spirit he's not like a separate part of who you are he's more integrated like god is in you more like you'd almost become god is in you more i i'm not sure well, like i know what you're i know what you're trying to say he's saying is it more integrated than just like a wheel on a car you know well i think the the descriptions of the glorified resurrected body in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the longest chapter in the Bible on the resurrection, and it gives detail, is is pretty clear. I mean, we will be incapable of sin. We will be, uh, there'll be no sickness, no, you know, no aches, no pains. I mean, all of that. So in that sense, Matt, I think a better way to say it is the perfections of our righteousness will now be evident every in every aspect of us. The noetic effect of sin, which noetic means the effect of sin on our minds, will be gone. We will, we will think without any impure motives or in, impure attitudes or anything like that. So in that sense, if I want to use your word, we will be more fully integrated with God in the sense that that's what he's making us new. We are, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creature. We're a new creation. 
And you so, lose the training wheels. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like this is that's why the Bible refers to this in Ephesians 1 14 as the final stage of redemption. The final stage of redemption is the glorified, resurrected body that's forever with Christ. And sometimes we just hope for that right now. Yeah, and, and <laughs> well, and, I mean, it, you know, but as, that's not going to happen because we're still bearing, we're still bearing the, the curse of sin in our bodies, although we're positionally holy and righteous. Our bodies still are deteriorating, but death has no victory over us anymore. Because when we, Paul says, when you're absent from the body, you be present, with the Lord. When we die, we immediately go to be with Jesus. Whereas the unbeliever does not have that, not at all. So I mean, that's all of your questions are really good questions and comments here. But we're kind of we're kind of getting into the area where the Bible has not spoken specifically about a lot of this. And I think we talked about this the other week. One of the reasons I don't think God has explained much about eternity. And is we just don't have a category for really understanding it. Like how how does the infinite and eternal God describe infinite and eternal in human words? Because human words, by by just using words, limit. You follow what I'm saying? When you start using words, you limit. You know what I mean? You just you start trying to explain it. You automatically start. Well, it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this. And God says, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say, I have not hear, seen, nor ear heard, nor the mind of man conceived all that God has prepared for those who love him. First Corinthians 10. It's like, it's, it is so, in the overused word, so unbelievable. I'm going to give you a few hints, but you've got to trust me. It, you really do, God is saying. So... Can I move on? Can I ask, can I ask one yeah. more question? This, this third group that you're referring to? Yeah, the, those who are alive, right. Those that are alive, and with, they do not have resurrected bodies. That's correct. Okay. So are those the ones that are going to be judged at the great... They're, they're the ones that are going to join Satan in the rebellion. They're going to join Satan. Some, some. Some will. Some. Okay. Uh, and that that's the only thing that we can say about because you have to answer the question where did these people come from and the procreation that this speaks of they have yeah. children yeah. that are also yes. part of the rebellion yes. is that done before Christ comes or no d- during it, again d- during this thousand year reign during this millennial kingdom of the Lord those who enter the, the, the kingdom alive what we just read about in Matthew 24 apparently from what we see are going to be able to procreate and they're going to have children but they're the and it will be their children because if they enter the sheep, they they put their faith in Christ, so they're entering the kingdom as believers. So it's their children and, and, and grandchildren and so on, uh, because it will still they still have to make the decision to follow Christ. But isn't it amazing? Jesus is on earth for a thousand years, and they still choose not to believe in him. I mean, that's just that's almost incomprehensible. But it shows you again, which is the whole point of us. The heart of the human being is is corruptible, it is dark, it is evil, and it's capable of rebellion. That's why God has to remake us. That's why it's the new creation. He has to remake us. Or if you want to put it, recreate us, or you want to put it, resurrect us. He has to do that. If he doesn't do this, we will always remain in our rebellious sin, which is, that's horrible. But that's just the grace of God. He remakes us. He has one requirement. You have to understand that I did this through Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Ed. 
I don't know if the Bible tells us this or not. I'm trying to grasp it, but uh, in that thousand years, those people that are alive, yeah, do they have a eternal life themselves? Are they? Or does their body age and then they Their die? body ages and they die. And they, so they pass on generation to generation. That's right. Okay. I just, I wasn't sure. and that's right. That's right. Look at verse 5 of chapter 20. Oh, yeah, sorry. In a thousand years then, will life be like this today? I mean, you know, God will be, I know, on earth, you know, I mean, I don't know how that will work, but you said, you know, they'll die a little bit. How is life going to be? Just those who yeah. enter a lot. Yeah. Well, Isaiah describes, uh, again, Isaiah. 11, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 32, uh, and I guess a little bit of 65 and several other 61, describe what the kingdom, it's going to be, the, the earth is going to be in a, in, renewed, and, and it, its abundance is going to be restored. In other words, in effect, almost what was lost in Adam, in terms of the physical environment and so on, will be restored in Christ. He is called the new Adam in, in Romans 5. So then, so it, that's what is just so amazing that there can still be a rebellion against God in the midst of all this. But that's what happened in Garden of Eden too. So it's that kind of it's that kind of um, with the king here and his his perfections because he's God. His perfections in ruling the earth will be remade. Or maybe not remade, renewed. That's a better word. And it's the and the Bible talks of the abundance of of the earth. The uh, the abundance of the productivity of all the things there, because the king is here, and it's um, it's 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 going to be a, a remarkable. As God fulfills all of His covenants, all of His promises. So, if you look at the top of page thirty-nine in your notes, if you have those, because I forgot, I wanted to begin with this, and just as I'm talking, Tom, I remembered. Why does God do this? By this, I mean why have this thousand-year period? Why, once Satan is bound and, and all that, why not just go right into the eternity, new heaven, new earth? Well, they're, they're, they're re- this is really an important theological point. I'm at the top of page 39. I give you four reasons. Number one, in space-time history, Christ openly manifests his kingdom. The biblical covenants are fulfilled since they're unconditional covenants. God made promises. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Now, if God's going to keep his promises, they have to be fulfilled. And it will be during this kingdom period that they will be fulfilled. Number two, the millennium will reveal again, we've been sort of talking about this, that the human rebellion lies deep in the human heart, not only with Satan's deception. Because even with Satan bound, the righteous king ruling there, there will be rebellion. And when he, that is Satan, is released finally, it'll prove that. I mean, it's, all, it's almost incomprehensible that there will be a group of human beings, despite everything that's happened for a thousand years, will still choose to rebel against Jesus. But it shows, it demonstrates something. The problem is the human heart. Now, Satan d- deceives and, and manipulates and controls. He's the source of the rebellion, I should say, in terms of the beginning of it. But it's still the problem. is So God has to remake, renew us. He has to change us. He has to recreate it, which is what Jesus means in his discussion with Nicodemus, the new birth. So, so yeah. one thing that bothers me is why is Satan released? And I'm, I'm following what you're saying. Okay, he binds him to prove that man still has a sinful heart, even though Satan is yeah. bound. Yeah. 
as long as he release him? Because yeah. now that's part of how he remakes us. No, I think the release of Satan and then that subsequent mini rebellion, because it only the, when you read it, it only sounds like it lasts a couple of hours or a few days or whatever. No, I think it is it's that final proof. It doesn't matter what I do until I change the human heart. There always will be capable, uh, capability of rebellion. It isn't. It isn't just you know. Some of you, I'm, I'm probably the oldest one here, so I'm the only one. Flip Wilson used to say. The devil made me do it. The end of the millennial kingdom shows, nope, nope. Everyone, everyone without Christ has that capability of rebellion. God has to remake us. And that's what, that's what salvation and redemption, the resurrected glorified body, that's all part of his redemptive program. And so, I mean, it's just, it's really, it's like in space-time history, God is showing it one more time why I have to recreate everything. And so then it's like the millennial kingdom is like cleaning everything up and just establishing and getting ready for the new heaven and world. Because that's how, and we won't, we'll, we'll, I don't think we'll get to it today, but next week we will. That's why the Bible does not just talk about heaven. The Bible talks of the new heaven, new earth. It isn't just a place where we're spinning around like angels playing harps with wings. That's not how, the, that's not how it's described. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, 2 Peter chapter 3, and Revelation 21 and 22. The new heavens, the new earth. Constantly used. God's going to remake everything. He remakes us as new creation, and he's going to remake everything. Or as, as John Bunyan, I don't know if you know John Bunyan, but as he know, paradise lost, and he writes the second book, Paradise Restored. Paradise is lost. So the, the bookends, the bookends of history from God's perspective is Eden and the new heaven and new earth, in between the human rebellion. Because really, we, and we'll see that next week. The new heaven and the new earth is, is like Eden. I mean, it's just what God intended is what God will accomplish. But if he's going to do it, the human race has the capability of choosing rebellion against him, and that's what they choose. So God has to do it. He has to remake his world. Yeah. Like when you have a new earth, it's like there's things that happen today. I mean, it'll be a new, it'd be different for them too then. A new heaven, new earth. Right. So it's going to be different. And that's something we'll have to talk about because yeah. the Greek word there is kine for new. Mm-hmm. New in terms of its quality. And that's why this is, this is a debate. This is a difficult issue for expositors. When you and I in English use the word new, we think something totally brand new. It's right. here's something, oh, we get rid of that, we throw it in the junk, and we get something new. Right. The word kine doesn't bear that weight. Kine, and I know I'm getting, I'm probably losing some of you, but it's, it's, it's new in terms of its quality. So is it that God is purging everything of evil and sin, and that's what makes it new? Or is he really, to, and it's even like in Second Peter 3 when he talks about fire. How do we understand that? That's a, if, if we are re- renewed, yes. we have our new Absolutely. glorified body. Absolutely. It's more like a restoration than brand new, right? So we have the quality. Well, see, that's, that's it. The, because our, when, when Fred gets his new resurrected glorified body, everybody will recognize that's Fred. So there's a continuity between the old 
but it's totally qualitatively different because it's 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 resurrected, it's glorified, it's no longer capable of sin. Be and, a lot nicer than. <laughs> and you you will be a lot better looking. I mean, <laughs> all the perfections. <laughs> All right. That's great. Can we look at the text again? It's 1230. Oh, no, it's not 25. Verse 5. Now, you have to keep the words and language here. Okay. Verse 4 is the resurrection of the, of the, the, the martyred saints of the tribulation. That's pretty clear because the language is very specific. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Okay, that is referring to the resurrection of the right before the great white throne judgment. We'll read about that in just a minute. But all he's telling us is there's a whole other category of human beings that God's not going to resurrect. Who are they? Those who have rejected him. And we have to wait to the end of the thousand, uh, yeah, wait to the end of the thousand years for that to occur. This is the first resurrection. What's the first resurrection? First resurrection in the in the millennial kingdom. It's the resurrection of those martyrs. And then he goes on, blessed and holy is, uh, is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over those the second death has no power. What's the second death? That's eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. So the second death has no power over who? The martyred saints who are resurrected in verse 4. And, and be, to be honest, because we learned that in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15 for the church as well. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So who's going to reign with Christ? The church that comes back with him, Revelation 19, and the, and the martyred saints that are resurrected in verse 4. And as we talked uh, last time, or just a few minutes ago, also those who enter alive. But they'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. Okay. Now, between verse 6 and verse 7 is a thousand years. Because <laughs> we're now going to go almost to the end of it. And again, I mean, I don't have time, and we don't have time today, but if you really, if you really uh, want to read about what is, what is this thousand years going to be like in terms of its physical characteristics and quality, you have to look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 65. Okay, yeah, 9, 11, 32, uh, no, 9, 9, 11, 32, 61, and then a little bit of 65, and then we get it, he, he starts to talk about the new heaven, new earth. They're just, it's, the, it's, it's describing the abundance, the abundance of the physical world, the abundance and productivity of the physical world. And um, with the king ruling, and you know, you read in Isaiah 9, it's that, Hondo put that to music in his great Messiah, you know, the, the titles, it, Wonderful, Mighty King. One, you know, remember those great titles? Because that's when he's ruling and reigning. That's describing his ruling and reigning uh, during that, that thousand-year period. All right, so I'm just, again, trying to stick just to the Revelation, uh, book of Revelation. In verse 7 through 9, verse 7 through 9, and when the thousand years are completed... Okay, now there it's a marker. So I mean, again, I I put it here because I don't have space. But you put this one, this one, this one, all at the end of the thousand year reign. And when the thousand years is completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay, that just takes you back to the first couple of verses of this chapter, one, two, three. So now he's released. When is he released? It just told us at the end of the thousand years. 
will come out of to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And then it uses this strange Gog and Magog title to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And again, who are these people? The only way to logically and reasonably figure it out, these are the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren or whatever, of those who entered the kingdom alive. The Matthew 25, 31 people. Okay? The sheep. Their descendants. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, that would be the valley of Jezreel, surrounding the camp of the saints of beloved city, Jerusalem. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So what's the sense in verse 9? How long does this rebellion last? Not very long. I mean, the text seems to want to make it very, very clear to us, this is not an extended, long-term rebellion. It's like starts, gathers, and boom, it's done. And it tells us, it, it, fire devours them, God supernaturally, God supernaturally destroys them. At the bottom of page 39, I have a little blurb on Gog and Magog. Because Gog is, Gog is the name of a person. Magog is the name of a place. But expositors have struggled forever <laughs> to try to figure it. But there's a parallel passage, and the parallel passage is in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Because there's an extended description of this. And um, I, I honestly, I really would prefer not to try to get into who, who are this, where is it. I mean, I, I don't think we can say with a lot of certainty. All the scripture is doing here is it's saying to us, using this mysterious Gog and Magog label, that there is a rebellion that is of humans that joins with Satan. It's, a, it's incomprehensible to me that that would happen. But it does. And so God then snuffs it out. And, and it's, again, we're very close to the end of the thousand-year reign. That's what it told us in verse 7. All right? I, I jumped ahead. I'm sorry. That's okay. Chapter 10. I mean, Chapter verse 10. 10. Oh, verse 10. Yep. Okay, we're, we're, that's what I'm going to do next. About, they talk about the beast and the false prophet. They talk about the devil is thrown into the lake where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. Right. Is it all happening together? No. God, uh, the Lord Jesus, if you go back to verse 20 of chapter 19, the Lord Jesus, when he marched up to from Jerusalem up to the Valley of Jezreel, defeated his enemies, seized Antichrist, seized the false prophets from the lake of fire. Okay. So it's just telling us Satan, is the devil, is being thrown into the lake of fire. Where there are, so at this point in time, there are two individuals in the lake of fire, the beast and the false prophet. Now Satan's thrown in there too. And now we're about to start what I think is one of the most terrible passages in Scripture. Terrible in the sense of God judging the unrighteous. But this, now verse 11 through 15 is going to tell us who else populates the lake of fire, which is just a horrible thing to think about. Okay, so what he just, the devil, verse 10, who deceived him was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also, they will torment it night and day forever and ever. The language there is pretty clear. This is eternal torment, which is, I, I don't know how, I just, for me, it's hard to think about eternal torment. I mean, I, I don't have a category for that in my mind, but that's what the text says. Now, verse 11 through 15 is an account of the great white throne judgment. And so I just put that at the end, the last vertical line there on the 
horizontal timeline of this chapter. And this is uh, it's very, very important that we're clear on what this is. And it helps to clarify it in verse 11 and verse 12. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven flee away, no place was found for them. This is uh, probably Jesus sitting on the throne, or Jesus and the Father. I mean, it, it, it doesn't... But in the language that we've had earlier in chapter 4 and so on, it's the glory of God is so incredible that nothing can stand in, 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 in it. And then verse 12 tells us the subjects of this judgment. Another way of saying it, who is being judged? Believers? No. The church? No. And I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne. Now, who are they? Go back to verse 5 of this chapter. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So who are these people? These are the people from all history, from the beginning till here at the end, who have rejected God's salvation. Okay? Because... You know, we've already, we, we've already seen the church and the martyred and, and so on. So the only other category of human beings left are those who have rejected God's grace for all of human history. And the text says, the great and the small standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened. This is the book of life. So you have two books. The books were open and the book of life. The Bible tells us in multiple places, the book of life is the record of everyone who's put their faith in Christ. Everyone who has accepted the grace of God. So what's the other book? Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 talks about that. These are the books that will give an account of why God has the right to judge them. Because the text says in the dead, in the end of verse 12, the dead were judged from the things which are written in the book according to their deeds. So this judgment at the great white throne, as this verse has made clear, is based on God's justice, isn't it? This isn't some impulsive temper tantrum of God. This, let's put it another way, God will present the evidence of why he is making the judgment of verse 13 and verse 14, sending them into the lake of fire. Now, let me, let me say something here about the, the, the first set of books. The book of life we know. The Bible is very clear. It's all over the place. That's the book of those who have trusted, put their faith, have trusted God, accepted God's grace, all those ways to put it. So what would be in that second book, the other books, those the evidence that will be used against those who rejected God's grace. It says deeds, and that, and that I don't know what all that will involve, but I have reached a conclusion, it's kind of a conviction of mine, that among other things, what God is going to do there to demonstrate that his, his decision, his judgment is perfectly just and perfectly righteous, is I think among other things as well, it's going to be an account of every time God gave him a chance to respond to his grace. 
You understand what I mean by saying it that way? Every time God gave him an opportunity, because remember, God reveals himself in creation, in conscience, and in his moral law, as well as in Jesus. There are four ways in which God has revealed himself in the scriptures. They make it very clear. And so God, and Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, whoever stands before the Lord at the great white throne will stand there without excuse. They're not going to be able to make a defense. You know what I mean? Because the evidence is so overwhelming. So I don't know if it is only only the deeds that they've done which are evil deeds. Because Jesus says in John 3.17, I did not come into the world to condemn the world. It already stands condemned. So it, I mean, it, it maybe and perhaps does, but I think it also includes all of the opportunities God gave them to respond to his grace, and they refused to do it. So God will say, and you've heard me say this, this is how C.S. Lewis puts it, God will say to them, your will be done. This is what you have chosen. You have chosen throughout your entire life to reject me. So I am not sending you to hell. This is what you chose. You chose to reject me. And I'm giving you all the evidence that you have chosen, of why you have chosen and so then, and the, the verse 13 just tells us the thoroughness of this. The sea gave up the dead which was in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, everyone according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what you read in, in verse 13 and verse 14 and verse 15, it's one, it's, every, it's comprehensive. Every human being has rejected God is going to stand before him. But did you notice something else? Death is thrown into the lake of fire in Hades. Hades is new to, there are two of them, but Hades is the New Testament word for hell. It's, it's where unbelievers go before the lake of fire. And so even Hades, so what you get the sense in verse 13 and verse 14, especially in verse 15, is all manifestations of evil and judgment are thrown into the lake of fire. There's a finality to it. It's over. You know, if we think about, there's a term about Hades or hell. Right. It sounds like even that will be thrown into the lake of fire. That, that place, that it's a temporary place where unbelievers go now. Okay. That's right. The, 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 the final I hate to use that word, but I don't know. The final destination of the unrighteous is the lake of fire. And the Bible tells us that God created the lake of fire for Satan. That's why he created it. And so then those who joined his rebellion and refused to accept God's gift of salvation, then they joined Satan in the lake of fire. It's a, it's a horrific thought. But what this passage just shown us show, has just shown us is this is, this is a just, righteous act on God's part. And I, that's why I love how Lewis puts it. God is not sending people to hell. This is what they chose. They chose to reject him throughout their life. That's why by inference, I think, among other things, in that first set of books, were all of the examples, not only of the evil they've done, but the examples of their conscious, willful, intentional rejection of God's grace. And I suspect... For the unbeliever, 
That's probably every single day they took a breath. God gave them an opportunity to respond to his grace. Be sure your deeds will find you out. Yeah. Is, is there a reference to mm-hmm. what's going on? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what my mother used to say to me all the time when I was a little boy. <laughs> she would say, Jimmy, be sure your sins are going to find you out. You know. But, um, yeah, well, I think that, that it, 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 is, it is a confirmation that this is a just moral universe. And if you choose sinful rebellion, the accountability of God is built into this universe. And you will be called to account for it. It's a, it's a you know, it's not a, today, especially in the 21st century, it's not popular to talk like this. I mean, this, this is not a popular thing to discuss. <laughs> and yet, you know, and I, I don't want to, this sounds cynical, but so often... Even pastors, they're, they're so comfortable talking about the love of God, which is right. That's so important. That's God is a God of love. But ultimately, at some point, you also have to talk that God is also a just and righteous God, which means he doesn't wink at sin. He can't wink at sin. He has to call the sinful rebellion to account, and that's in its final sense, that's what we just read about. In your, uh, in your notes here at the top of 40, um, it says the other book is the book of life. Uh, that contains all who have professed faith in right. Christ. So that's a given there. They're in there mm-hmm. because they profess that's faith. That's exactly right. Those whose names are not there will be declared guilty. Right. So it, it's cut and dried. It is. They're guilty. So... It seems to me like then what, well, the purpose of the judgment of them is just to review what they've done wrong or and, to remind them and, and why this is just. Exactly. Uh, okay. and, and to just validate that validate. this is just. Okay. What I'm doing is just. But there aren't going to be any people in there that have professed faith in Christ. No. The great wine throw so judgment is so not I'm for believers. It's just cut dry. It is. Much. it is. And there's no degrees of culpability. No, no. I mean, they're not a misdemeanor no. or a felony here. No. So no. they're all going in that's right. to they're the eternal all cast into the fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how the Ten Commandments is there's no the Ten Commandments the one that has a greater degree. Really. Because God, I mean, James says this, and Paul says, to break one of God's moral standards is to be guilty of them all the organic nature of God's moral moral law. All right, now, yeah, Andrew. Just one quick no, question. Absolutely. We're, we're saying books plural there, judged what was written in the books, and you have that in your notes here too. Is that, I've, I've, I've heard people talk about like, so we have the Ten Commandments, um, but a lot of people kind of live by their own moral code, which is not necessarily in line with Absolutely. with God's code. Is that what those books are? It's kind of like I think you've said before, like fine if you don't want to be judged, through, you know, um, through Christ and the commandments, then um, uh, I'll judge you by your standard, which you can't even uphold. Uh. I, I don't I don't know if I can answer that mm-hmm. with specific uh, confidence and certainty there, Andrew, uh, because as the Bible discusses these books, 
the book of light is very clear. There's just no ambiguity on that, and we saw that here. But what exactly is in what, you know, the books are open and then the books according to their deeds. I mean, what, what is, I mean, it's just, it's a very broad term. So that's why I suggested, I mean, it could involve that. Okay, here's my moral law and so on. But even the moral code that you chose to live by, you couldn't live up to that. But I think it may be some of that. But that's why I keep coming back to what is the standard? What is the standard by which God accepts us because we accepted his gift and by grace through faith we accepted it the only requirement is that you know it wasn't we picked it we picked it off the table it was there all the time god said pick it up so it would seem to me to a degree it also seems reasonable that god is also going to review before this person to demonstrate with without any question that they rejected him again and again and again and again and again. That's why I like to put it, they rejected his grace. I just think, um, and I, I really, that's why nobody, nobody's going to stand before God as a great white You're being unfair to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's a, sort of a silly thing to even contemplate, but nobody, that's what Paul says, nobody is going to be able to make that charge against God. They're without excuse. I mean, you just think how, how absolutely horrible that will be to stand before Almighty God and try to defend yourself when you know, when you know and see. And it's just, it is, it is the consequences of the choices you have made. Just like, I'm hoping and trust that's true of everybody around this table, that you consciously at some point in your life made that decision to put their faith in Christ. But there are many human beings that are just, I don't care what you say, I am not going to choose to follow Christ. I don't want anything to do with him. A kind of belligerent attitude. Well, I think we've got to, this is good. Good in the sense that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to get through this. So that next week, um, I want to give you a little handout on the New Jerusalem and so on. But next week, I want to talk about 21 and 22. And it's, to particularly chapter 20, this incredible description of the New Jerusalem. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a handout. For, I love this handout. A guy trying to put graphically what this looks like. And then we'll just talk a little bit about the new heaven and the new earth, which is a wonderful thing to talk about, because that's the destiny of every one of you, if you put your faith in Christ. Lord, we're thankful for uh, the clarity you give in your word. You tell us uh, and, and sort of lay out for us just a basic framework and we just, I, I kind of hate to finish with the great white throne, but maybe we'll just finish with the anticipation of discussing new heaven and new earth. Because that's, uh, that's the destiny of all of us who put our faith in Christ. That's the ultimate destiny. And so that's a wonderful thing to contemplate and think about. That's what we'll study next week. But it is important for us to remember that, um, and, and I think it's so important to always think this way, God, you do not send people to hell. That is what people have chosen. When they chose throughout their life, day after day after day, to reject your grace, it means they're willfully, intentionally choosing in that rebellion, choosing uh, their destiny for eternity. That's pretty clear. 
So it's our job to represent you now, to uh, be available when people want to talk about these things, but in our lives, both in how we live and what we say, to represent you, because often we are the only Bible people see, we're the only Christ people see. And in our imperfections, and even in our own personal struggles, we can still reflect that wondrous grace of Christ, which is what we are to be doing as salt and light. So give us a good rest of this day and this week, and as we regather next uh, Next Wednesday, to finish our study of this magnificent subject of prophecy. 27% of the Bible is prophecy, and we're just about ready to complete our study of it. So it's been wonderful, and I hope it's been edifying and enriching for these men. Give us a good good dismissal here in your grace, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.